Hello, Florida Bar members and Florida registered paralegals. This is a quick reminder from the Standing Committee on Mental Health and Wellness of Florida Lawyers that you are approved to use the Florida Lawyers Helpline, a completely free and confidential around-the-clock helpline designed to support you in managing the challenges of both your personal and professional life. By dialing 833-FL1-WELL or 833-351-9355, you can connect with mental health professionals who are ready to assist you. Take advantage of up to five complimentary in-person or telehealth counseling sessions annually. And remember, there's no limit to the number of calls you can make. Reach out today. You're listening to the Florida Bar Podcast, brought to you by the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center, Legal Fuel. Produced by the broadcast professionals of the Florida Bar. Welcome to the Florida Bar's Legal Fuel Podcast, brought to you by the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. We are so glad you are joining us. This is Jamie Moore. I'm a practice management advisor at the Florida Bar and one of the hosts of the show, which is being recorded from our studio in Tallahassee, Florida. Our goal at the Practice Resource Center is to assist Florida attorneys with running the business side of their law practices. We focus on a different topic each month and carry the theme through our website with related tips, videos, and articles. Many attorneys rely heavily on their non-lawyer staff to assist with the extensive workload that comes along with running a practice. It is very easy to begin to lean on competent and experienced staff members to handle significant components of cases but it is critical that attorneys have a clear understanding of the bar rules that address the appropriate roles of non-lawyers. The supervising attorney must ensure that the tasks handled by non-lawyers have not crossed the line into unlicensed practice of law, because ultimately it is the attorney who will be held responsible for anything that occurs during the life cycle of the case. So today we're going to dedicate this episode to discuss guidelines for the roles of non-lawyers and the attorneys that supervise them, so both parties can avoid a situation which could lead to serious consequences for both the non-lawyer and the attorney. The Florida Bar Professional Ethics Committee has created a supplemental packet that addresses proper and improper activities of non-lawyer staff and the guidelines that should be followed to ensure ethical violations aren't being committed. Joining us today to discuss ethics and rules related to non-lawyers is Jonathan Grab, the Director of the Ethics and Advertising Department. Jonathan graduated cum laude from Florida State University's College of Law in 2008 and became the Ethics Counsel for the Florida Bar in November 2021. After serving in the Ethics and Advertising Department for eight years as an Assistant Ethics Counsel, Jonathan has fielded more than 20,000 calls on the Ethics Hotline, reviewed thousands of lawyer advertisements, and issued dozens of staff opinions. Prior to working at the Florida Bar, Jonathan was a Senior Attorney at the Agency for Persons with Disabilities. Welcome back to the show, Jonathan. Good morning. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for being here. And you've been on our show before, so we're really happy to have you back. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. So let's jump right in and talk about the initial interactions with a potential new client, which may include completing an intake questionnaire or interview. Is it permissible for a non-lawyer to handle any parts of the initial interaction? And if so, what are some guidelines that should be followed? Sure. So there are a few limited tasks that a non-lawyer could handle in that initial intake process. And this is actually discussed in Ethics Opinion 88-6. 
uh, which you can get on the bar's website, of course. Um, but really, again, it's one of those things where a lawyer needs to be very careful because as you'll sort of hear as a reoccurring theme uh, during this discussion, anything that would require the lawyer's uh, you know, advice regarding particular matters, the lawyer's professional judgment on anything, that is going to be something that the lawyer has to do themselves and that no, they cannot delegate to a non-lawyer employee. Um, so as you'll see in 88-6, no, it's not per se impermissible for a, a lawyer to have one of their non-lawyer employees conduct that initial interview with a client. It's actually discouraged, specifically in that opinion. And it notes that, you know, yes, if there are any questions that come up regarding, you know, the nature of the contract, the nature of the legal services, anything along those lines, and those are going to have to go to the attorney. And specifically, there are three things that that, that, that opinion notes a non-lawyer would have to do if they're going to do that initial intake. And that is, first, they have to be certain that they clearly identify their non-lawyer status to those prospective clients. Second, that they're used only for the purpose of obtaining factual information from the prospective clients. Not that they're giving that initial consultation in the context of, you know, here's what you're going to need to do. Here's what you're going to expect in your representation, anything like that. And third, and finally, that they give no legal advice concerning the case itself or that representation agreement. So again, you know, they, if they have a question about, well, is this going to include, you know, if I, if I hire you for this divorce uh, to handle that, is this going to include any, you know, related custody issues? Is this going to include, uh, you know, potential other issues related to, you know, ownership of this one particular piece of property that's disputed. Those questions are going to have to go to the lawyer rather than, you know, try and have that non-lawyer employee answer any of those issues. And so, yeah, that's super important. It's just upfront say, I'm, you know, so-and-so's whatever legal assistant assisting, just taking the information, just give me the details. If, if the, you know, client asks questions, clearly state, you know, this needs to be directed to um, the attorney and just make that very clear. Right, exactly. And that's what you need to make sure, again, that your non-lawyer employees are prepped and ready to say, should those questions come up? Because again, the lawyer is ultimately going to be responsible for any of the conduct of that non-lawyer employee. So if they start crossing that line and they give legal advice, then yes, that potentially could be that lawyer uh, putting their own license on the line effectively uh, based on that non-lawyer employee's conduct. Great. Um, so after that information has been collected, is there anything that the supervising attorney should do with that information? Like immediately after? Do they need to follow up with anything? Is, is there any requirements for that? So the opinion itself doesn't go into great detail, but I mean, of course, an attorney always has their duties of communication and diligence in the representation, abiding by the client's objectives in that representation. And so those are going to be the duties that once that initial intake interview is complete, even if you had a non-lawyer employee handle that process, that lawyer, of course, is going to need to follow up with those clients to make sure, again, that their objectives are going to be consistent with what the lawyer's services are going to be, that they actually have that direct line of communication so that the person actually knows who the lawyer is and who's going to be assisting them in this. And again, so that the any questions that this uh, client has can actually be addressed by the lawyer rather than trying to have that non-lawyer employee address those. 
Okay. What about um, a deposition? Can a non-lawyer assist with any parts of a deposition? They can. Sounds like they can assist with the initial intake, but what about handling a deposition? So this is actually something that has been explicitly prohibited under the ethics opinions. And for this one, you're going to take a look at, and just give me a moment here, uh, ethics opinion 73-41 is going to be the most significant opinion on this one. And uh, specifically, Ethics Opinion 73-41 notes that, no, even if they're licensed in other jurisdictions, it would not be appropriate to have a non-lawyer employee uh, handle depositions. And that even includes if that deposition is also attended by an actual lawyer. Um, so yes, you cannot have that non-lawyer employee uh, potentially ask questions in the deposition. Now, presumably they could attend and take notes, but again, when you're talking about the actual questioning of the witness in the deposition, that is something that must be done by the lawyer. Okay. Are there any other types of work related to the deposition that they could possibly help with? You know, just as long as it's not taking those questions, but are there any uh, other areas that would be okay? I mean, to be perfectly frank, there's really not too much in the context of a deposition specifically uh, that I'm aware of that a non-lawyer employee would be able to do. Now, there may be some very, uh, various scenarios where you could imagine, you know, an out-of-state attorney who's been admitted to appear pro hoc in a matter um, who may then be able to provide advice in those particular circumstances or, you know, conduct a deposition. But when you're talking about the actual deposition itself, I mean, really, you know, yes, they could coordinate, you know, scheduling, that sort of thing, and potentially assist with that. But when it comes to the actual mechanics of the deposition, no, there's really not that much that a non-lawyer employee would be able to offer. Okay, good. I'm glad that we made that very clear, um, you know, just so there there's no confusion over that. And you did touch earlier that, you know, non-lawyers should not be giving any legal advice, but that, you know, there's a, a line that can be crossed where they may get into the unlicensed practice of law. So can you just maybe give a few examples of where you might be teetering on the edge of crossing over into that? Sure. And there's a few rules to start with that lawyers will want to take a look at regarding the work of their non-lawyer employees. So in particular, they're going to want to start with rules 4-5.3 and 4-5.5 of the rules regulating the Florida Bar. 4-5.3 notes that a lawyer, again, is responsible for assuring that there are adequate policies and procedures in place for any non-lawyer employees to assure that their conduct is consistent with the lawyer's professional obligations, as well as, again, that the lawyer is responsible for the supervision uh, and actually assuring that those non-lawyer employees, again, are acting, not just that the policies are in place, but if there's that direct supervision that the lawyers, non-lawyer employees are actually acting in a manner consistent with the rules. Because again, the lawyer generally is going to be responsible for anything that their non-lawyer employees engage in. Likewise, rule 4-5.5 notes that you cannot assist or engage in the unlicensed practice of law. And if effectively you're you know, letting your non-lawyer employees engage in any conduct that could be considered the unlicensed practice of law, you know, yes, that is something that could get the lawyer in trouble. So when you're talking about, you know, uh, again, that supervision of non-lawyer employees, 
you know, these are things where you're going to want to start looking is 4-5.3 and 4-5.5. I have a, just a hypothetical here. Let's say um, we have a non-lawyer and they've been you know, heavily involved in a case from like the initial engagement with the client and they know everything about the case. And then they decide to leave, you know, that firm and they want to go work at the opposing counsel for maybe the case that they've been working on. Have you heard of a situation like this or what, what are your thoughts on something like that? Sure. And this is something that, you know, certainly isn't unheard of. And there's actually an ethics opinion, again, addressing this scenario, and that's ethics opinion 86-5. And uh, I should caution because 86-5 is only addressing the ethical implications of a non-lawyer employee switching from one firm to potentially an opposing firm um, and does not address the legal implications, which is to say, you know, outside of the ethics rules, outside of what a lawyer could be sanctioned for by the bar, could it result in, say, disqualification of the lawyer law firm? Um, and so, again, that's what our opinion is going to focus on. And it's going to say that when you have that non-lawyer employee who's switching firms to a potentially opposing law firm, the law firm that they are leaving should admonish that employee, as you, as stated in the opinion, uh, not to share any confidences or information from that firm's clients with the firm that they're joining. And likewise, the firm that they're joining should assure that no, they in fact do not share that information with any of the uh, new firm's attorneys or regarding any of the firm's pending matters related to that prior law firm that they worked for. So this is actually a more lenient standard, to be clear, than if you had a lawyer switching firms. Because if you have a lawyer switching firms, then it's far more likely that that conflict of interest is going to be imputed to the entire new firm under Rule 4-1.10 sub B. But that being said, you know, here, when you have a non-lawyer employee, no, it's not automatically under the ethics rules going to be imputed to the new firm. Uh, but again, there's plenty of case law out there to say that Yes, it may result in that firm's disqualification. And some of those cases are actually cited uh, in Ethics Opinion 86-5. But I mean, yeah, certainly it's not unheard of that you're going to have those conflicts imputed. We have, you know, a variety of cases, again, starting with that, you know, a POPCA case that you'll see in, uh, cited in 86-5. Um, but yeah, where courts have said, you know, look, even if this is something that is ethically permissible, no, it doesn't appear to be on the up and up. We think that, yes, it can be shown that this non-lawyer employee had knowledge and information that could be used against their prior firm's clients, and therefore we're going to disqualify the entire new firm. And, I mean, you know, this non-lawyer employee, they, they may not disclose, you know, to their current employer, this is where I'm going. They may just leave. Um, and in that situation, if the attorney finds out that, the previous attorney they were working with finds out my non-lawyer staff member just went to that other firm. What can they do in that situation? I mean, we kind of discussed before if they're leaving, they can, you know, go through all of the guidelines, but what happens if they find out after the fact? Well, again, certainly when the non-lawyer employee is first leaving that original firm, they should say, you know, make sure that you do not share any information from our clients with any new employers that you go to, whether it's a law firm or otherwise. But along with that, again, if they subsequently find out that yes, in fact, this non-lawyer employee has joined an opposing law firm, 
and they start to have concerns that that non-lawyer employee is in fact sharing that information, well, at that point, you know, frankly, it becomes a bar complaint issue. And, you know, yes, what we would say is, you know, yeah, if you're that original firm, you know, we can't give an opinion about somebody else's conduct. We can't give an opinion about whatever it is that this new law firm is doing or allowing. But, you know, yeah, you may want to consider contacting the attorney consumer assistance program up in lawyer regulation that does the intake for complaints and, you know, potentially complaining about that conduct if you believe that, yes, they are violating the rules of professional conduct. Okay. Very good. All right. I just want to switch gears a little bit and discuss um, e-filing through the e-portal. I know there's important points that um, everyone should consider and guidelines. Um, are non-lawyers permitted to add an attorney's signature to documents if they have the attorney's permission? Or are there some documents that absolutely cannot be signed by the non-lawyer on the attorney's behalf if they're being e-filed? So traditionally, the guidance on this was that no, a non-lawyer employee would not ever be able to affix a lawyer's signature to a document um, because, again, that implies that the lawyer actually has reviewed the document and has assured that its contents comply, again, with whatever rules of court may apply to that scenario or has reviewed the document for its legal sufficiency, all of that. Now, that has changed in recent history. And in particular, you've got Ethics Opinion 12-2. And you've got Ethics Opinion 87-11, Reconsideration, which was updated actually um, about, what, eight years ago, I think now. And so what you'll see in 12-2 and 87-11, Reconsideration, is that, yes, potentially you can have a non-lawyer employee actually you know, access those login credentials and submit the documents through that filing system, as well as, you know, at the lawyer's specific direction, affix the lawyer's signature to an electronic document. But again, that still is something that would have to be done under the lawyer's supervision. So the lawyer is going to ultimately be responsible for assuring that the content of that document complies, that yes, it is something that's ready to be filed and is legally sufficient otherwise and in compliance with the court's rules. And so, yes, again, you know, it is for the limited purpose of letting that non-lawyer employee, again, do the sort of ministerial or clerical task of filing through the e-portal. You know, yes, that is potentially permissible, but that doesn't waive any of the requirements of the lawyer to assure that they've done their work and that they are adequately supervising that non-lawyer employee. Okay. Are there certain documents, though, that just absolutely should not be signed by by the non-lawyer. Are you aware of any situations happening that have come up with that? So not necessarily in the context of the e-portal. I mean, of course, there are going to be some rules, um, you know, in the rules of judicial administration and general practice or some rules, you know, in civil procedure, you know, et cetera, that are going to specifically require that, you know, something be uh, signed and certified, not just necessarily by the lawyer, but also potentially by, you know, a third party, such as the client. Um, but again, those are going to be set under, you know, the court's rules rather than through the rules of professional conduct about if there's particular documents that are going to require, um, you know, someone else to actually, you know, authorize or affix that signature. Um, but again, yes, you know, the lawyer potentially may direct, you know, generally speaking, under the ethics rules, a non-lawyer to affix the electronic signature uh, permitted under the rules of judicial administration as they currently exist with the e-filing system. Um, and so for the lawyer's part, 
generally that's going to be okay, provided that the lawyer specifically authorizes it for each filing submission. Okay, great. Are there any rules regarding bar members who have been disbarred? Are they able to work as non-lawyer staff and meet with clients? So this is a messy one. This is where you get into sort of the nitty gritty. And the rule to look at is rule 3-6.1. And I should start off by being clear that chapter three is the rules of discipline within the Florida Bar's rules, the rules regulating the Florida Bar. And so, you know, really, I'm going to have to defer to lawyer regulation on the interpretation and application of those rules. But if you look at 3-6.1, yes, there are very explicit requirements regarding hiring potentially a previous lawyer who has been suspended, disbarred, um, has had a disciplinary revocation, which is essentially, you know, a consent judgment to disbarment, um, or a lawyer has been placed on the inactive list due to incapacity. And so in those scenarios where you're hiring somebody under one of those circumstances, uh, one, they cannot be hired by their prior subordinate. So you can't take an associate from, you know, the Smith law firm. And then when, you know, uh, Joe Smith lawyer gets suspended or disbarred, you know, they, Joe Smith then just goes to work for, you know, John Doe, the former associate at the, you know, Joe Smith law firm. Uh, because again, that's explicitly prohibited under 3-6.1. And really, again, part of that is that, you know, presumably that former lawyer who's now been suspended or disbarred is going to have some improper influence over the direction of that lawyer's services because they were a prior subordinate. Likewise, any time that you hire a suspended or disbarred employee, or again, somebody who was put on the inactive list due to incapacity, they actually need to notify, and this is an obligation on the lawyer who hires them, that lawyer needs to notify the Florida Bar uh, basically with a notice of employment and a detailed description of the intended services to be performed by the individual subject to this rule before the employment starts. So basically, they're going to have to send that to the Florida Bar explaining exactly what this uh, former lawyer who's now been suspended or disbarred is going to be doing. Further, sub D of uh, 3-6.1 prohibits any direct client contact or any client contact actually at all under the current version of the rule. Um, which includes, as described in the rule, engaging in communication in any manner with the client. They cannot receive, disperse, or otherwise handle trust funds or property. And finally, of course, they cannot be engaged in anything that would constitute the practice of law, nor be able to hold themselves out, of course, as being able to do so. Um, finally, uh, you know, in addition to all of those, you're going to have to do quarterly reports to the Florida Bar, um, and you have to assure that there is a lawyer who is in good standing, who is supervising the conduct of that former lawyer who's now been suspended or disbarred um, and who is employed full time by the entity that employs this suspended or disbarred lawyer and is actively engaged in the supervision of the individual subject to the rule in all aspects of the individual's employment. So again, basically, if you're really wanting to hire that prior lawyer who's now been suspended or disbarred, you need to make sure, one, that you do all of this additional legwork for reporting and notifying the bar. But two, you know, just as with any non-lawyer employee, but even to a heightened standard here, 
you have to assure that their conduct is not going to run afoul of the rules of professional conduct or the rules regulating the Florida bar generally. Because if they start doing something improper, which, you know, frankly, presumably if they've been suspended or disbarred, that's already happened once when they were actually a lawyer. Well, if they drag you down in the mud, you're going to be paying the price for their work. Right. That's great information. I I just learned a lot there. So just to recap, they need to report that to the Florida Bar, and I'm assuming that is to lawyer regulation. Is that correct? Uh, Yes, that is my understanding. And so, you know, again, that is something that is in their rules. So I would defer to them about how that notice process actually works. Um, But yeah, you know, presumably since, you know, it is through lawyer regulation, uh, you would probably want to start by contacting their office uh, here at the Florida Bar. Okay. Yeah, that's a good point. So reach out to them, get all of the information and um, make sure you're following um, everything you need to do with that. Thank you. Um, Let's change it up a little bit and talk about bonuses and commissions. So I'm sure that this is coming up a lot, but can non-lawyers receive bonuses or commissions after a completion of a successful case? What are your thoughts on that? So there are some limited scenarios where a non-lawyer employee may receive a bonus. Um, But again, this is discussed in Rule 4-5.4, which addresses the professional independence of a lawyer, and in particular, Sub-A generally uh, prohibits any fee sharing with non-lawyers. And then Sub-A-4 of that rule, you'll see, notes that bonuses may be paid to non-lawyer employees for work performed and may be based on their extraordinary efforts on a particular case or over a specified time period. Bonus payments shall not be based on cases or clients brought to the lawyer law firm by the actions of the non-lawyer. A lawyer shall not provide a bonus payment that is calculated as a percentage of legal fees received by the lawyer or law firm. And there's actually a corresponding ethics opinion for this one as well. So ethics opinion 02-1 notes that, again, uh, along with those restrictions in 4-5.4, Uh, An attorney may not give a bonus to a non-lawyer employee that is based solely on the number of hours worked by that non-lawyer employee. So you could, in theory at least, find some way to justify the uh, non-lawyer's sort of, again, extraordinary efforts in a particular case. But, you know, you're going to have to tie that uh, bonus to something more than just, oh, okay, they did a lot of work on this particular case and it happened to have a successful outcome. So instead, what you're going to have to do is, you know, look at some standard or determine some standard beyond just how much they were able to bill for or how many hours they put into that case when you're, you know, determining whether or not they're even entitled to a bonus. And then, of course, you know, detach that from the amount of the bonus and make that determination, again, separate from what the, uh, again, the fees or any recovery um, or even the time committed by that non-lawyer employee to that particular case was. Okay. So just as long as it's not connected to the fees, there's no fee sharing allowed, correct? Correct. But okay. again, it's also when it comes to the hours worked, you that can't be the sole consideration for, you know, again, whether or not they're entitled to a bonus from a particular case. You have to have something in there that goes beyond just, you know, okay, they put 200 hours worth of work into this case and therefore they get a bonus. Okay. Gotcha. 
we've been talking, you know, maybe we're, we're thinking along the lines of paralegals or legal assistants, but I want to just touch briefly on um, maybe in-house marketing directors. I know a lot of big law firms have um, these individuals working for them. Are they able to receive um, commissions if they generate a lot of new business for, you know, the attorney or the firm? Nope. I mean, that's really the short answer. Okay. So again, if you look back at 4-5.4, those bonuses cannot be tied to the number of cases or clients brought to the law firm by the actions of the non-lawyer. Uh, similarly, if you look at Rule 4-7.17, subsection B, that rule prohibits a non-lawyer or frankly anyone other than the lawyer or the law firm um, from getting paid for, again, recommending the lawyer's services. So, you know, again, if they're if they're bringing clients in, you know, that can't be something that you use as a basis for saying, you know, okay, this is the bonus or this is the sort of fee that they're going to get is based on however many clients or what have you that they've brought into the firm. Um, so that's something that, you know, instead, if you're going to hire that marketer or that company, you have a separate invoicing system or you have a separate employment agreement that says, you know, this is their salary. This is their hourly wage. You know, something, again, that is not tied specifically to those cases actually or clients brought in to the law firm um, and instead just focuses on, you know, yes, this is our standard employment agreement or this is what they would normally bill for this type of marketing campaign. Okay, very good. Um, I want to just talk a little bit more about billing the non-lawyers time. So we we spoke about, you know, fee sharing and all and bonuses and that sort of thing. But what about, you know, billing their time? What what work can an attorney delegate to non-lawyers and what should the lawyer know to make sure they aren't breaking any rules for the work completed by the non-lawyer staff? Sure. So, again, this is something where the sort of traditional guidance on this uh, is seen in Ethics Opinion uh, 75-29. And originally it was that no, you really can't charge a client for any work of a non-lawyer employee if it's, you know, secretarial or clerical work, you know, unless that work is somehow extraordinary or unusual. And so it, if you look at the original guidance, that was sort of the limitation. Now, that was actually immediately updated um, within the following years through Ethics Opinion 76-33 and 76-38 Consolidated where they did acknowledge that, yes, in the alternative, if they were actually doing legal research as part of their work, you know, as a paralegal, again, as opposed to, you know, just that clerical or secretarial work, um, then yes, you could potentially bill that to the client. And then again, there is another caveat to that, which is to say, if you look at ethics opinion 07-2, it notes that in theory, you could even pay for the services of an overseas provider of paralegal services subject to certain restrictions, you know, assuring that they keep the information confidential, all of that, you know, that they comply otherwise with your ethical obligations, but that you should only pass that cost on to the client if, again, it's not some sort of contingent fee or other fee scenario where that's something that's normally built into the lawyer's fees as overhead. And, you know, again, would be appropriately distinguishable and chargeable to that client. And of course, then even in that scenario, you should only charge the client the actual cost of those services. So if you're going to use some third party to provide these paralegal services and they give you an invoice of $10,000, 
then you charge the client $10,000 for those services, assuming you can't even to begin with, and it's not already covered in overhead. You can't say, well, you know, they charge me 10,000, but I need a profit margin. So I'm going to bump this up to Mm 12,000 so I can make a little money too. Right. Okay. Very good. What about um, non-lawyers that are assisting with preparing real estate documents? Um, Maybe some of them attend the closing in place of the supervising attorney. What guidelines should be followed in those situations? Sure. And there's actually, this is actually, you know, something that would be specifically appropriate or encouraged for paralegals to engage in is document preparation. Now, again, that needs to be done under the supervision and with the final review and authority of a lawyer. But when you're talking about the actual document preparation, um, that's something that paralegals, yes, would be very appropriately suited for. And so what you're going to, excuse me, what you're going to want to look at there is Ethics Opinion 73-43. And again, you know, as previously stated, all of this is available on the bar's website. Um, But yes, you know, in those scenarios where you have somebody who is actually a paralegal, you know, potentially that is the the entire premise is that they would function as someone who can sort of do that foundational work, do that potential research or do that initial drafting. And then at that point, before it's ever provided to the client, before it's ever filed anything along those lines, An attorney, yes, would review it and assure that, again, it complies with the standards that the attorney has to satisfy as a lawyer. Okay. But just to clarify again, they cannot give any any advice. If they have questions, they have to redirect that back to the supervising attorney. But handling just the document portion of it, they're okay. Sure. And again, that's to be clear, what I'm talking about here is just the documents, not necessarily client contact, not trying to explain the documents to anyone. Uh, Again, all of that is something that is going to need to really be done by the attorney, by the lawyer. Um, So while they can potentially, again, you know, present the documents uh, in that initial interview, or there is actually, uh, you know, potentially an opinion that would allow uh, a non-lawyer to attend a closing, the moment that there's any questions about those documents, or frankly, even if the attorney just has failed to properly explain the nature of those documents to their own client, then at that point, you need to have the attorney back involved because the non-lawyer employee, even though they may have participated in the drafting of those documents, is not going to be able to interpret and apply or even really discuss the substance or intent of those documents with any of the parties present. Okay. Uh, What about um, non-lawyers working directly with adjusters, like say, you know, insurance adjusters, can they handle those negotiations and communications or is that prohibited? Again, there's a pretty short answer for this one. And that is no, they cannot handle any sort of negotiations. And that is addressed in another ethics opinion. And sorry, we keep jumping around, but you know, I figure it's going to be helpful for uh, anyone listening if they want to take a look at these opinions themselves and get some more background. Um, hopefully, they you know feel confident doing that. Um, so for this one, what we're talking about is ethics opinion 74-35. And inherently, when you're talking about negotiations, yes, it's going to involve uh, interpretation of legal issues. Uh, and application of the law in a manner that is something that they have explicitly said, no, you cannot delegate to a non-lawyer employee. Um, And even though, you know, yes, potentially there are public adjusters out there who have some, you know, some functions that they can perform as public adjusters, uh, 
One, a lawyer is prohibited from having any sort of working arrangement with a public adjuster, and that's addressed in Ethics Opinion 92-3. So you can't have any sort of, you know, again, uh, arrangement where you're working with them or have them, you know, encourage clients to contact you should their services not be sufficient to resolve a matter, anything like that. But when you look back at that opinion, um, again, uh, 74-35, it actually distinguishes you know, a non-lawyer employee from that function of a public adjuster uh, as described in Chapter 626 Florida Statutes and notes, quote, the client employs the attorney, not a public adjuster, to prosecute his claim against the wrongdoer and the insurer and is entitled to the lawyer's participation and judgment in the conduct of negotiations, end quote. And so, you know, again, just goes back to that notion of, no, you can't have a non-lawyer do any or engage in any conduct that would involve a lawyer's professional judgment or the interpretation or application of law, and that would include negotiating claims. Okay, great. Um, what about our um, Florida registered paralegals? Are there any differences, um, let's say, if a non-lawyer has that designation versus someone that doesn't? Are FRPs, um, Florida Registered Paralegals, also known as FRPs, are they able to handle different assignments because they've um, they've worked towards that special designation? When it comes to the lawyer's supervision and the lawyer's responsibilities for assuring that they are not engaged in any conduct that would constitute the unlicensed practice of law, there really is not any meaningful distinction between being just a paralegal or being a Florida registered paralegal. Now, when you're talking about the efficiency of the work that they're performing, or, you know, which might include their salary or what rate you can bill for their services, then yeah, certainly that may be something that you want to distinguish, you know, that yes, this work was performed by not just a paralegal, but a Florida registered paralegal. And so that's why their hourly rate is slightly higher. But again, when it comes to the lawyer's supervision, the lawyer's responsibilities, um, and the lawyer, again, assuring that they're not engaged in any conduct that would uh, constitute the unlicensed practice of law, it really doesn't make a distinction under the ethics rules of between a you know paralegal who's not certified or a Florida registered paralegal. Okay, very good. And thank you so much for all this information. And I know we did kind of bounce around, but we were just trying to hit all of the the high points and common questions. So I think this was you know fantastic information and this happens, you know, where we, you know, you might rely on your, your non-lawyer staff to, to help you, but it's, it's very important to make sure that, um, you know, the attorney is supervising them. And, and there was a recent article actually that um, came out in the beginning of October and it was highlighting, you know, an attorney that, um, you know, did get in trouble for, you know, several different things, but one of them was relying too much on their, on their non-lawyer assistance and not providing supervision. So um, I'm just so glad that, you know, we've covered all of these questions and I, I think it's, it's fantastic. So thank you so much. Lawyers absolutely have gotten in trouble uh, for, again, not properly supervising or directing their non-lawyer staff. And that's something that is a reoccurring theme is that you'll get clients who are upset because I only ever heard from a paralegal. I'd never even heard from the lawyer, or I thought the person I was talking to was the lawyer because I never actually got a call from Joe Smith. It was always, you know, uh, uh, Jane Doe or Jim Brown or whoever. 
And so I thought that that was my lawyer when in fact that was the paralegal or that was the legal assistant because the lawyer couldn't be bothered to actually make the call themselves. And so that is a frequent and reoccurring issue. Another one that comes up is that technically you can have a non-lawyer as a signatory on your trust account. And that is something that the ethics opinions have said technically is permissible, again, to have that trusted non-lawyer employee as a signatory on the trust account. And that's addressed in ethics opinion 64-40, reconsidered. But this is something that I absolutely encourage lawyers to be exceptionally careful about. One, the lawyer is still going to be responsible for assuring that any monthly and annual reconciliations of their trust account are properly performed. And we have had lawyers get into so much trouble for this. And there's one case in particular that really actually kind of takes the cake and is almost unbelievable with how uh, egregious this became. And that's the Florida Bar versus Gilbert. And the citation for that, you can actually find uh, the Supreme Court case number SC15-2004. And there, the attorney was actually disbarred because of the conduct of their non-lawyer employee. But when you look at the case, uh, it was extraordinary. Literally, this non-lawyer employee had had a history and prior convictions for fraud and embezzlement. And the lawyer was actually warned that this non-lawyer employee could not be trusted. The non-lawyer employee then subsequently took money from the firm's operating account. And for whatever reason, the lawyer rehired the non-lawyer and then delegated again them responsibility for the trust account management. The non-lawyer employee, surprise, surprise, subsequently embezzled over $5 million from the lawyer's trust account. And so again, this is something that, you know, it sounds extraordinary. It sounds unbelievable to think that a lawyer could be that off the ball, you know, that they could that let something that egregious slip by, but it absolutely does happen. And in particular, when we have tough economic times, you'll see in that packet that you, uh, that basically we're referring to today, this non-lawyer employees informational packet on the bar's website, that, you know, yes, there is particular concerns whenever lawyers are looking for, you know, basically work in tough economic times. And we have, you know, foreclosure crises or other incidents where you have these non-lawyer businesses that are looking for lawyers that essentially they can then uh, really sort of glom off of in order to make their money. And so, again, this is something you want to be very careful. If somebody comes to you with an offer that seems too good to be true, and they're saying, hey, I can generate all this business for you. I can bring you all these clients. That's the time to really take a deep (laughs) breath and consider this before you say anything or agree to anything. Because odds are this non-lawyer employee does not have your best interests in mind. And you are very likely to be in trouble with the bar if you let them have that sort of free reign. Yeah. And I feel like we could we could talk so much more about trust trust accounting. So that's a really, really great point um, to just watch what you're doing with that and and not, you know, manage it yourself, essentially. And again, it's really just that you have to keep in mind that you as the lawyer are responsible for this work. It is a law firm. You are a lawyer. That, you know, yes, you can delegate some functions in the operation of that business, the business side of it, to these non-lawyer employees. And if you have a paralegal, you can have them help with research and that sort of thing. But again, when you talk about that, that supervision, 
that legal advice, all of that that takes the actual work of the lawyer, that's something that can't be delegated. And again, we have had numerous attorneys over the years who've gotten in trouble for exactly that. You want to take the easy road and then you pay the consequences. Thank you so much. Uh, Jonathan, if our listeners have questions, how can they reach the ethics attorneys in your department or find the rules or ethics packets online? Sure. So to reach the ethics hotline to discuss anything, that, any questions that they may have, they can dial the ethics hotline at 1-800-235-8619. Um, and again, that's open anytime that the courts are open from nine to five. So basically we take court holidays. Um, so if the courts are closed, then yes, we're going to be closed here at the Florida Bar. But otherwise, yes, we would be here weekdays. Uh, nine to five and to answer those calls. So just feel free to give us a ring and we'll help you out as best as we can. And yes, the hotline, of course, is staffed by attorneys. So, you know, yes, you might get originally that message from someone saying, you know, sorry, if if we're backed up on calls, you know, do you mind if we give you a call back? And that might be a non-lawyer staffer in our office. But the actual advice is always given by lawyers uh, through the ethics hotline. Uh, likewise, if they have any questions that they'd like to address, uh, you know, in writing, uh, potentially get that written opinion, uh, or again, if they'd just like to look up the uh, rules and the ethics opinions themselves, they can go to floridabar.org, which is the bar's homepage. And at the very top of that page is a link for rules, ethics, and professionalism. Once they click on that link for rules, ethics, and professionalism, on the left, they'll see the rules, standard, uh, rules, standards, and jury instructions, which is going to take them to the rules regulating the Florida Bar, as well as uh, various court rules. Um, along with that, in the center is the ethics and advertising link, and on the right is the Henry Latimer Center for Professionalism. If they choose ethics and advertising, that's where they can then go and search those ethics opinions, as well as get the inquiry form. Um, and finally, if they just have questions that they want to email us, they can send those emails to eto at F-L-A-B-A-R dot O-R-G. So again, that's E-T-O at F-L-A-B-A-R dot O-R-G. Perfect. And I also just want to tell our listeners that there's ethics packets online available. We get calls and we um, direct our our callers to these packets and a lot of people are not aware of them and, and they're wonderful. They have a lot of information and the packet that we discussed today was on uh, non-lawyers and legal assistance. So you can you know, go in and find that entire packet. And again, Jonathan had mentioned lawyer regulation. Um, so we will put all of these links um, online and you'll be able to get to all of these these links. So, well, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. Thank you so much, Jonathan Grab, for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. If you like what you've heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. Join us next time for another episode of the Florida Bar's Legal Fuel Podcast brought to you by the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. I'm Jamie Moore. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalFuel.com. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to the Florida Bars podcast via iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and RSS. Find the Florida Bars Practice Resource Center Legal Fuel on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by the Florida Bar. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.